Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we come to feast upon your word now, that you would give us an appetite for it, give us a hunger to hear your word and to receive it and to believe it and with your help to obey it in our lives, that we might be uh, the church you've called us to be, that in all things we might give you the glory. Our Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' strong and powerful name. Amen. Well, please do have your Bible open at that passage we read earlier, Ross Service. We're back in Deuteronomy chapter 12 this evening, looking at verses 1 through 28. And you might remember that just over a year ago, we pressed the pause button on a series of sermons in the book of Deuteronomy. We looked at the first 11 chapters in the book. And at that point, there is then a break in the book. And so for that reason, we took a break as well. And it's taken us a year to end that break and to come back to what is arguably the most important book in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. And so we're picking up where we left off and we're going to be in Deuteronomy for the next little while as we look at the next few sections of this book together. And just in case you've forgotten in this past year where we're at in the story of the Bible, Moses gives us a very helpful little reminder at the beginning of this new section at the start of chapter 12. He says there to the people of Israel, these are the statutes and rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. Maybe you remember that the people of Israel are camping out on the plains of Moab. They're on the eastern side of the River Jordan. They're getting ready to cross over the River Jordan and enter into the promised land, this land that God had said he would give to them, promised that he would give to them. But Moses himself, because of a previous sin back in the wilderness, is not going to make that journey across with them. And so what he does is this. He sits down, all the, the people of Israel, and he preaches to them a final series of sermons. He begins in chapters 1 to 3, and he reminds them of the, the story of how they've arrived at this point in their history as God's people. And then in chapters 4 to 11, he gets to the, the basic requirements of God's law. At the heart of that is, of course, the Ten Commandments, which are recorded in chapter 5 for us. And then the, the basic requirements are finished by the end of chapter 11. And chapter 12 starts this new section of the book now. And chapter 12 through to 26 are all to do with the detailed requirements of God's law. We've heard the basic requirements. What about the, the nitty-gritty of everyday life as God's people? What would it look like for God's people as they get into the land to live their lives God's way. 
So we begin this new section of the book here in chapter 12. And I'd like to try and sum up the whole chapter, or at least the verse 28 verses of it, in one sentence. And the, the sentence is as follows. You might want to jot it down if you're taking notes. God's people must worship God alone in God's place, God's way, with God's people, to know God's blessing. I notice there are five aspects of the worship of God that this chapter emphasizes for us. We must worship God alone in God's place. We must worship God's way with God's people in order to know God's blessing. Those are the five aspects of it. And what I'd like to do this evening is simply to walk through these verses and just draw out these five aspects as we go. So the, the first one is this, God's people must worship God alone. Now imagine uh, just for a minute that you're in the process of moving house and you agree a price with the previous owners. Uh, the sale is completed. At last you get your hands on the keys and so you go around to that house for the first time as the owner of the house to have a, a look round the house. Really have a, a closer look round than you've done so previously. And as you're going round the house, you get to the room which is going to be your bedroom. And you open the door and you step inside and to your horror, you find that all the walls of this room are covered with Manchester City posters. Now for the purposes of this illustration, let's imagine that you're a Manchester United supporter and you find all these Manchester City posters all over the walls of your new room. What is the very first thing that you're going to do when you move into that house? Well, the very, very first thing that I'm sure you do is you just get rid of all of the Manchester City memorabilia. Throw it all out. Because, of course, these are your great rivals. You want your new home cleansed of all of this stuff. And that's a, a very silly illustration in a way, but there is a similar kind of situation I want you to see that is awaiting the Israelites as they move into their new home, as they move into the promised land. That promised land would not just be a blank slate. It wouldn't be a new build, as it were. It would rather have the detritus left behind by the previous owners. They would leave their rubbish behind. And the land was going to be a place filled with idolatry. Altars, pillars, asherim, carved images of their gods littering this whole land. And these false gods are, of course, rivals to the true God. And so the first thing the people of Israel must do when they get into the land and as they push the, the other people out of the land is they must get rid of every sign of idolatry, wherever they find it in the land. That's what Moses is telling the people in the first, well, verses 2 and 3, isn't it? You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every 
green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. And you see, Moses knows that if God's people go easy on idolatry, it will inevitably become a snare to them. And what one generation of God's people tolerates, the next generation affirms. It's generally true, isn't it? And so if they don't take this zero-tolerance approach to idolatry, very quickly these other gods, these idols, these rivals to the true God, would start to entice the people of Israel. Bit by bit, start to drag their hearts away from the God who had saved them. And sadly, that is, of course, exactly what happened. Moses is warning the people about that here. God's people must worship God alone. The very first commandment in the Ten Commandments made that absolutely clear to the people, didn't it? You shall have no other gods before me. And to that end, the people of Israel must therefore be ruthless in banishing all forms of idolatry from their midst. Now, what does that mean for us as God's people today? Well, of course, our context is rather different, isn't it? And yet the, the same principle applies to us as God's people today. Uh, this basic principle, we must worship God alone. Uh, we must have no other gods before him. And in order to do that, we will need to adopt this zero tolerance approach to idolatry. And so we need to ask ourselves, well, what is it that threatens to drag my heart away from the true God? What am I tempted to worship? What am I tempted to seek safety and satisfaction and fulfillment in? that is not God? What are the rivals to God in my life? And am I giving that form of idolatry a free pass in my life when I should have zero tolerance for it? And once we've identified what those idols are, then with God's help, we need to turn away from them thoroughly. Turn away from that idolatry and worship God alone. That's the first aspect that Moses addresses here concerning the worship of God, isn't it? Simply, God's people must worship God alone. Then here's the second aspect of it. God's people must worship in God's place. We must worship in God's place. And maybe you noticed when we were reading the passage earlier on that there is this particular emphasis in the chapter on the place of worship. It's the dominant theme, really, in these verses. For example, verse 5, You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. Verse 11, To the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you. Again, verses 13 and 14, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose. And it happens again and again and again in, in the chapter, verse after verse, 
this emphasis on the place that the Lord would choose. Now, what is this place that Moses keeps speaking about? Well, initially, it was wherever the, the tabernacle was located. But eventually, in the course of time, God would make it clear that he wanted that tabernacle replaced with a, a, a permanent temple, the tent replaced with a building. And the place of his choosing for that was, of course, the city of Jerusalem. And when God's people wanted to bring their offerings in worship before God, that was where they must go. The temple was the place where God dwelt in a special way amongst his people. It was where they could meet him. It was where they could worship him. It was where the sacrifices were offered before God. God's people must worship in God's place, Moses is saying. And maybe you're thinking, well, how on earth does that apply to us as Christians today? Do we all need to go to a special place if we want to worship God? Do we all need to go to Jerusalem if we want to worship God rightly and if we really want to meet with God? And of course, the answer to those questions are, is no, we, we don't need to go to that special place. We don't need to go to Jerusalem. Just cast your mind to the conversation Jesus had with the woman of Samaria. This very question comes up in that conversation, doesn't it? In John chapter 4, the woman asks Jesus this specific question. What about the place of worship? It was a, place of, it was a, a point of controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans, and it, it comes up in this conversation. And in response to the woman, Jesus says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. And put simply, we don't need to go to a temple in Jerusalem to worship God rightly. Because Jesus himself is the fulfillment of what the temple in Jerusalem foreshadowed. And so true worship of God is no longer located in a particular place, but in a particular person, who is Jesus, his son. And Jesus is everything the temple in Jerusalem was, and more so. Jesus is where God has come to dwell in a special way amongst his people. That's why we call him Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is where we meet God. In Jesus we can worship God. And in Jesus himself, the, the once and for all sacrifice for our sin was offered before God when Jesus died on the cross. You see what the temple foreshadowed is all fulfilled in Jesus. And it's for that reason that God no longer says to us, if you want to worship me rightly, You've got to come to Jerusalem. But instead he says to us, if you want to worship me rightly, you've got to come to Jesus. It's all about him. So let me ask you, well, have you done that? Have you come to Jesus? Have you come to him turning away from sin, turning away from idolatry, and trusting in him so that in him you can come to know God? 
You can meet God in Christ. You can be reconciled to God in Christ. You can be a true worshipper of God in Christ. And if you've never yet come to him, well, why not do so even this evening? We can only worship God in Christ. And then thirdly, notice this, God's people must worship God's way. So we must worship God alone, we must worship in God's place, and we must worship God's way. And as we've seen already, the place of worship is so important. It's emphasized again and again in this chapter. But the place is not the only thing that is important when it comes to the worship of God. So it's not the case that the people of Israel could say, well, as long as we've got Jerusalem... And as long as we've got the temple, we'll be all right. Now, in fact, that's exactly the kind of thing they would say later on, isn't it? If you know what the prophets say, particularly Jeremiah, that the people of his day were saying, well, as long as we've got Jerusalem, as long as we've got the temple, we'll be fine. It'll all be okay. And obviously, Jeremiah condemned them for thinking in those terms. As well as the importance of worshipping in God's place, they must also worship in God's way. It must be true worship. And this chapter, you see, has got a lot to say about the right way to worship God. And I'd like you to notice that when it comes to worshipping God's way, really three things are especially emphasised in this chapter. Firstly, there's an emphasis on God's word. This chapter talks a lot doesn't it about the different kinds of offerings that must be brought before God in worship burnt offerings tithes contributions free will offerings the firstborn of the herd of the flock and so on and, and so on and we don't need to go into all the details tonight about those things there'll be plenty of opportunity later on in Deuteronomy to think specifically about some of these things but what we should notice as a general point this evening is that all of these different offerings were commanded of the people through God's word. So God's word stood over and shaped the worship of God. So just notice that in a couple of places in the chapter. Verse 11, to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you. You see the emphasis both on the place and on the word. Verse 28, be careful to obey all these words that I command you. And so if the people of Israel want to worship God rightly, they must put special emphasis on God's word to them that had come to them through Moses. Their worship must line up with God's word. And then as well as there being this emphasis on God's word, there's also an emphasis placed on blood. Maybe that sounds strange to you, but maybe you noticed it when we were reading the chapter earlier on. There's this special emphasis on blood. For example, verse 23, only be sure to, that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it, you shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it. Well, maybe you're thinking, what is this all about? Why could God's people in the Old Testament not eat meat that still had blood in it? And the reason is that under the Old Covenant, blood was of special symbolic significance. Uh, Leviticus 17 really is the key chapter on this. Uh, and here's what it says 
in verses 11 and 12. Leviticus 17. The life of the flesh is in the blood. And I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I've said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood. And you see, the blood was of special significance to the people of Israel because it was the God-given symbol of life. That's what Leviticus 17 is saying, isn't it? The life of the flesh is in the blood. And the pouring out of blood from a body, therefore, is representative of death. Simply life leaving the body. And this is why blood was, was so important in the laws governing Israel, and in particular concerning the sacrificial system. Because it represented the fact that a life had been given. A life given in order to atone for the sins of the worshipper, so that they could be forgiven of their sins, because something else had died in their place. The writer to the Hebrews picks up on this whole imagery in the book of Hebrews as a whole, but particularly in chapter 9. And he says there, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. There must be the, the shedding of blood, because only the shedding of blood signifies that a death has taken place, and the wages of sin is death. And so as the people settled into the land, these laws were, were given to them to remind them every time that they sat down for dinner of this great importance of blood, that symbolically it reminded them that they could only be forgiven by God if a life was offered in their place, if something died for them. And it's for this reason we have this emphasis on blood here in Deuteronomy 12. And then as well as the emphasis on God's word and an emphasis on blood, there's also an emphasis on joy, isn't there? Three times, in fact, in the chapter, verse 7, verse 12, and verse 18, we find the words, you shall rejoice. You shall rejoice. You shall rejoice. God commands his people to be joyful as they worship him. Worship is not meant to be dry. It's not meant to be uninspiring. Not meant to be a going through the motions sort of thing. No, God calls his people to be joyful as they come to him and as they worship him. As the Shorter Catechism puts it, our chief end is not just to glorify God, but as well as that, to enjoy him and to do so forever. Paul says to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say, rejoice. This is the way to worship God, says Moses. Put special emphasis on these three things. God's word, blood, and joyfulness. And it's the way it should be for us as well, isn't it? We can't say, well, as long as we've come to Jesus, our worship must be fine, whatever it's like, as long as we've come to Jesus. No, rather God calls us, doesn't he, to worship him in a particular way. And I, I would hope that if a visitor was to come to this church and afterwards someone was to ask them, well, how does that church worship? I would hope that they would pick up on these three things. 
I would hope that they would say, well, that is a church that pays very careful attention to God's word as they worship God. And God's word stands over and shapes everything that they do. They read the Bible. They pray the Bible. They sing the Bible. They preach the Bible. God's word is emphasized throughout. And not only that, but they never forget about the blood. Not the blood of bulls and lambs or anything else, but only the blood of Jesus poured out for them. And every week they remind themselves of that as they read the Bible and preach the Bible and, and sing the Bible. That they, The focus is on the blood of Christ and what he has done for them. They remember that that's the only way that they can be forgiven. And as well as that great emphasis on the word of God and the blood of Christ, they're filled with joy as well. This is the way to worship God in Christ, isn't it? And then fourthly, notice this. God's people are to worship with God's people. God's people are to worship with God's people. And again, it's a theme that, that comes up again and again in the chapter. As the people of Israel worship God, there is this emphasis placed on doing so corporately, gathering together for the worship of God. So, for example, verse 7, you and your households. Verse 12, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns. Verses 18 and 19, same again, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant, female servant, and, and so on. Simply when God calls his people to worship him, he wants them all there. Young and old, male and female, and people from every level and corner of society. And they're to express their unity as God's people, as they gather together as one in the presence of their God in order to worship him. And the same is true for us as God's people today, isn't it? He's given us this day in the week. He's given us the Lord's day when we're free to rest from so much of our daily work. And as well as that, we can focus on worshipping him. And of course, our whole lives should be lived in worship of God. And yet Sunday by Sunday, he calls us together to worship him with God's people, showing our unity with one another as we do so. The writer to the Hebrews tells us, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so make sure that you're making public worship each Sunday a priority. Very simply, God's people are to worship with God's people. And then fifthly and finally, as we worship God alone in Christ, being careful to worship God's way, and doing so with God's people, we will know God's blessing. That's the fifth and the final element in this chapter, God's blessing upon his people. It's what the very last verse underlines, isn't it? Verse 28, be careful to obey all these words that I command you, 
that it may go well with you and with your children after you when you do what is good and right in the sight of the Lord your God. And as the people of Israel worship in this way, they would know that God would bless them. He'd be with them to protect them, uh, to provide for them. He'd establish them in the land. He'd defeat their enemies. He would be their God and they would be his people. He would make his face to shine upon them and he would bless them. And so here is this wonderful promise that is held out to us as God's people. As we worship God in all the ways that this chapter has outlined for us, God is pleased to bless his people. And that doesn't mean that our worship earns God's, God's blessing, as if it's some kind of transaction taking place. We can never earn God's blessing. And yet by his grace towards us in Christ, God is pleased to pour out his blessing on his people as they come to worship him. And that's a great incentive, isn't it? To worship God with his people. That as we come here to do this, we can expect his blessing upon us. We can expect that he will build us up in our faith. He will strengthen our assurance. He will deepen our joy. He will advance our Christ-likeness. He will revive our strength. He will comfort our hearts. He will kill our sin. He will cultivate our love for him and for one another. And he will add to us those who are being saved. This is what it looks like to be the people of God, isn't it? These great verses show us that God's people must worship God alone in Christ. God's way, with God's people, to know God's blessing. Let's pray that we would be those who worship God like this. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words of Deuteronomy 12 that we've heard from this evening, and we pray that these words would shape us to be the people that you have called us to be. And first and foremost, help us to worship you alone, casting aside any idol that so easily can drag our hearts away from you. Give us strength to do that, we pray, to cast aside whatever idols linger in our hearts and to turn from them and to give our devotion and our worship to you alone. And help us to realize that it is only in Christ that we can truly worship you. And we pray that you'd help us all to come to him in repentance and faith, so that in Christ we can come to know you and come to worship you rightly. And as we do so, help us to worship your way in obedience to your word, ever mindful of what Jesus has done for us in shedding his blood at the cross, and help us to be filled with joy as we consider these things. Help us always to prioritize meeting together with your people week by week in order to worship you. And as we do so, we pray that you would pour out your blessing upon us as your people. Work in us and work through us. Build us up as the church and do so for your own glory's sake. And in Jesus' strong name we pray. Amen.